I want to start by telling you about a period in my life when I discovered that idolatry was a problem for me. And that was a surprise, and it may be a surprise to you because we think of idolatry as something that's very Old Testament, very obsolete. And yet, I was going through something in my life. Carrie and I both were having a difficult time with several events that had happened in our lives. She had lost our father. Um, Carrie's dad was a, a wonderful man, a, a great Christian man, and, and was very special to her. They were very close. And so she was going through significant grief. And as a pastor, it was surprising to me that and I'd walked with dozens, maybe hundreds of people through grief, but I couldn't seem to do anything to help my own wife, who I loved. Um, I was going through grief of my own. My grandfather had died. Also, Carrie had suffered an injury, and, and that necessitated a surgery that was very painful and had a very long and, and difficult recovery. At the end of that recovery, turns out the surgery didn't work. The problem it had gone to correct wasn't corrected. So that was a huge disappointment. Our kids were struggling, both of them, and they were struggling because of a decision I had made to move us from one place to another. That was my decision, and they had been happy where we were before, and they were unhappy now. And so that, again, was uh, another blow to my ego. And then uh, on top of everything, I was pastoring a, a great church full of great people, and, and they couldn't have been nicer to me, but I wasn't doing a good job, and I knew it. I mean, this was a church that had a great history, and it had just been through a time of decline numerically, and they had called me with the thought, okay, here's this guy who's, who's young, who's, I was young at the time, don't laugh, uh, and, and, you know, he's going to get us, he's going to just revive the church, but it wasn't happening. And I'd always pastored churches that grew, but this one wasn't growing. In fact, there was a, this is something I realized in the middle of this really difficult year to 18 months was when I got there, there was this beautiful, wonderful young adult group, all these young men and women that were going to be the future of the church. And I looked around and realized they're all gone. They'd all started going to other churches. And none of them, as far as I know, were mad at me. But still, I still felt responsible for that. And there were other things I could tell you about. The main thing that got me was I couldn't understand why I didn't still have joy. I mean, I'd been preaching my whole ministry career, doesn't matter what the world throws at you, if you got Jesus, you've got joy. And that had been true in other times of disappointment and doubt and discouragement and failure, but now it wasn't. Now it was literally everything I could do just to get out of bed, just to function, to stand up before my church and, and preach the word. And, and I didn't understand what was wrong. And part of, part of it was my fault because I hadn't, I hadn't invested in friendships with other Christian men. So I couldn't, didn't have anybody I could sit down and just say, hey, here's what I'm going through. Pray for me. Have them slap me around, talk some sense into me. Hey, quit feeling sorry for yourself. Nobody was like that. I couldn't dump all that on Carrie. She was struggling with her own issues. And I couldn't just stand up in front of the church and say, hey, everybody, my life stinks. I mean, that, that's just not what you want from your pastor, right? I should have gone to counseling, but I didn't. The one thing I did right was I stayed in the Word of God. I prayed about what I was struggling with, and I was just honest before Him. I mean, fortunately, I'd read the Psalms over and over again. The psalmists are so honest before God. They just say things like, God, I don't understand why this is happening. Please help me. And that's what I said to Him over and over again. And in the middle of that time, I felt like God was communicating something important to me. You know, I'd read about idolatry in the Old Testament, and I began to see as I studied the Word, it's all through the Bible. It's from Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible is about how God is here to be the God who saves, but there are all these false gods that negotiate and, and, and lobby inside of our hearts to get that market share, to, to, get, to claim our allegiance and our affections. And many times those aren't bad things, they're good things. 
Like I wanted to be a successful pastor. That's a good thing. But because it was so important to me, when I started to see that I wasn't as successful as I wanted to be, it was devastating. I wanted people to like me. I especially wanted my wife and my kids to look up to me and, and see me as a, her, a hero. But when I was in a period of life where I, all I could see was the ways I was failing them, well, that was devastating to me. I, I wanted comfort. I wanted a life that was safe and secure where there were no issues and no problems. Who doesn't want that? That's a good thing. But it had become an ultimate thing to me. I mean, if God, literally, if God had come to me that day and said, okay, Jeff, I'll take away all your disappointments and all your pain, everything will go back to the way you want it to be, but you won't grow a single bit. Or you can stick with me through the next, however long this takes, and it's going to be hard, but you're going to come out stronger. I would have said, no, 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 I'll take, I'll take A, Lord. I'll take that first option because I worshiped comfort and security and stability. And God didn't give me that option, fortunately. And so as I walked through that with the Lord, I became passionate about this idea because I, I knew I wasn't the only idol worshiper in the church, that all Christians struggle with this. There are false gods competing for your affection and your attention and your allegiance, and you need to recognize that. And that's the story of Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, the people of God do some things that we can't even imagine them doing, but they do. Last week, as we saw... These people were the most privileged people ever. They'd been rescued from slavery, and now God said, I'm going to make you my chosen people. It doesn't mean I love you more than anybody else. It means I'm giving you the opportunity to serve me in the sight of the nations. You'll be my kingdom of priests. You'll represent me before the world, and the way you walk is going to bring people to salvation. And, and so uh, Moses, goes back, uh, Moses goes back up on top of the mountain after he's given the people of God this great news, and they've said, hooray, we're excited Moses goes back on top of the mountain. He spends 40 days with God on top of Sinai. 40 days in which he literally never eats or drinks. God's presence alone is enough to sustain him. It's a miracle. And during that time, God tells him, okay, from now on, you're going to worship me this way. You're going to create something called the tabernacle. The tabernacle will be this huge tent. It'll be a movable sanctuary. Wherever you travel from now until you get to the promised land, you'll be able to take me with you. And inside that tabernacle, there's very specific architecture, very specific furnishings, an altar to give sacrifices on, a, a holy of holies where my presence will dwell. Wherever you are, whatever's going on, you'll know I'm in that place so you can meet with me. It'll be a bridge between heaven and earth. The, the Ark of the Covenant will be there. It'll be this gold box in which you'll carry the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments and other things that remind you of me. And I'm even giving you the people who will put all this together for you. So I want to show you this. This isn't the sermon, but... Chapter 31, verse 2 says, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. And let me tell you why I read that, because I know there are people in this room who are creative. You draw, you paint, you, you create things, maybe on the computer, maybe out of cloth or wood or steel. Maybe you sing, maybe you write. But if you're a creative person, just understand, this is God saying, I have called you to do that. Your calling as an artist is just as useful to God as a pastor preaching or a singer singing or a leader leading. And if you're sitting there saying, well, I'm not creative and I'm not in the ministry, just understand God has given you gifts. God has given you a calling to accomplish something in his plan that glorifies him. And it is, you listening to me? It is just as important as what I do. I have a, a sacred calling. I, I love what I do. I think it's special. I think it's beautiful. 
but it's not any more important in the plan of God than what God has called you to do. Now, don't tell your pastor that because preachers think we're, we're special, but you are just as important in the plan of God, all right? It's not the sermon, that's for free, but I needed to say that. So here is the sermon. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days. The people down below, they don't know what's going on up top there. Moses is having the time of his life. He's in the presence of God for almost six weeks. Best 40 days he ever experienced. The people down below are thinking, where's God? We see the man. We know he's still here. But why isn't he speaking? Why isn't he moving? Why has he left us here? So look at verse 1 of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So one thing you need to notice is the people don't seem to think they've done anything wrong. Notice when Aaron says, let's have a feast, he says, let's have a feast to the Lord. That's the covenant name, Yahweh. What he's saying is, we're not worshiping a different God. We've just made a thing to represent our God. We've just made a God we can see and touch. It's the same God. It's the guy that got us out of Egypt. We're not idolatrous here. We're just, we're just making God more accessible, right? But God didn't see it that way. What does Moses do when he comes down from the mountain after 40 days in the presence of Almighty God? He takes those two stone tablets written with the finger of God himself and smashes them on the ground. Now, it's interesting how you remember certain things from your early childhood. This is one of my earliest memories, not that I was there at Mount Sinai, teenagers, but when I was a little boy, my mom used to read me Bible stories. And I remember the night she read me this one because I remember saying to my mom, I bet God was really mad at Moses for smashing those tablets. I know if I would have smashed something of my parents, I would have been in trouble. But God, mom said, no, you don't understand, Jeff. It's God was mad at the people, not at Moses. It was hard for me to understand. And a lot of Christians are this way too. We put a lot of stock into holy objects, right? We, we put a lot of stock into things you can see and touch and feel and call them sacred, call them holy. What God cares about is the heart. I mean, I could, I could own, if I had enough money, a Gutenberg Bible or even a, a scroll written in the Middle Ages in, in Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek of the Scripture text. And I'd think, wow, this is amazing. But if I didn't actually live according to the word of God, I might as well burn that thing up, right? That's what God cares about. So Moses smashes those stone tablets because what he understood was the people had said, we will follow every word that God says. And less than six weeks later, he'd already, they'd already broken the covenant. The covenant between Israel and God was done. They had walked away from it. Because remember, the second commandment out of the 10 is in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 5. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now that word jealous bothers us, doesn't it? Because some of us can remember when we were teenagers, 
Some of you who are ladies remember at times you dated a young man who was a jealous, possessive type. Maybe if you're a young man, you were that jealous, possessive type. Just understand something that when, when you say you're, you're a young man and you say to your girlfriend, okay, you can't talk to that guy. Or, hey, I'm mad at you because I saw you posted on social media a picture of yourself in this group and there was a guy in that group that I know likes you and how dare you be around him. And, and hey, you better not break up with me because if you do, I'm, I'm just gonna drive my car off a cliff or whatever. You realize that is evil what you were doing. That is selfish. That is possessive. That is not of God. So when God calls himself jealous, is that what he's saying about himself? No. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God is not a jealous boyfriend? But he is a jealous husband. And let me tell you the difference. God's God's jealousy comes out of a place of love, not selfishness. Not out of a desire to control and possess, but a desire to fight for us. God is more like a husband who married a woman who comes out of a, a life of addiction and despair who was almost dead when he met her, and, and she walks away from that life, and together the two of them build a new life, and they have kids, and, and she gets a job, and she's living a life that's beautiful and free. And one day, one day years later, her husband looks at her cell phone, and he says, hey, why did this guy text you? Because he knows the name on that cell phone. This is the guy who was her drug dealer back in her former life. Why is this guy, why is this guy reaching out to you? Oh, it's no big deal, she says. I, he just got out of prison and a bunch of us, uh, my old friends and I, we're going to meet at his apartment. We're going to have a kind of a celebratory dinner, you know, now that he's out of jail. Now, if you're that man, if you're that husband, don't, doesn't love demand that you beg her not to go? Doesn't love demand that you say, over my dead body, will you go to this party? In fact, if I'm that husband, I'm calling up that guy on the phone. He doesn't know that I'm five foot nothing, right? I'm calling up that guy and I'm saying, I'm going to go to jail. I don't mind going to jail if it keeps my wife from going back to the life that she lives. You're going to stay away from her no matter what. That's godly jealousy. And that's the jealousy God has. God knows what our idols do to us. And that's why he is a jealous God. So what do our idols do to us? That's what I want to talk about for the rest of our time. Number one. Our idols defeat our purpose. God made us with a purpose. And when we follow idols, we miss out on that purpose in life. You may wonder, if the Israelites were going to create something that would represent God in their eyes, why would they choose a golden calf? Why a calf, right? There's nothing, there's nothing admirable about that. Well, one of the things you need to understand, and archaeologists have helped us with this, they've uncovered statues, paintings, uh, carvings that show all the nations around that part of the world in that era worshipped calves. That was just a common thing. Even in Egypt, there was, there was a calf idol. And so this was Israel's way of saying, hey, let's get what they have. You know, it seems to be working out for them. Let's, let's have one of those. And the irony is, if you were with us last week, you know, the whole point of the covenant between God and Israel was, I'm going to make you different. You're going to stand out from the rest of the nations. They're going to see something in you they don't see anywhere else. You're going to be the only nation that only works six days out of the week. You're going to take the seventh day off. They're going to work their tails off for seven days a week, and you'll have more than they have only working six days a week. God had it figured out way before Chick-fil-A, right? You're going to be the only nation that realizes that true greatness is to look out for the least of your people. The people who are struggling, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, the poverty-stricken people stuck in those cycles of poverty, when you reach out to them, when you, when you bear their burdens, then you're righteous. 
No other nation lives like that. You're going to live like that. Every other nation thinks it's, it's fine for a man to cheat on his wife as long as she doesn't cheat on him. You're going to be the nation that holds men accountable just like women. And you stay faithful to one another. Most of all, you're going to be the nation that believes in one God. You don't have to live your life in fear that, oh no, I forgot to make an offering to the God of the moon, so tonight one of my kids is going to die. No, all, everything is under one God and He is righteous and He is loving. You don't have to live in that kind of quaking fear of Him. You live in, the, in a godly fear, a, a fear of the Lord that is love. And that was the story that Israel was supposed to live out. But instead they said, no, we want to be like everybody else. Now you can probably remember being that way when you were kids, right? You wanted to fit into the crowd unless you were that one weirdo that had the, you know, the purple mohawk or whatever. And even then, you're trying to impress your other purple mohawk friends, right? It's, it's, you're never really a nonconformist. But it's the same when we grow up. We want what other people have. And I, I'm going to say a hard thing to you. We, as, as Christians, especially as you get older, you start to lament how Christianity used to be more of a force for good in our culture. It used to have more cultural respect and impact. Churches used to be growing. We used to see people, lost people come in off the streets and get saved. And we say, what, what's it going to take to get back to those days? I'll tell you what it's going to take. It's going to take you and me being honest about our idols. That's what's between us and fulfilling our purpose. Because right now the world looks at us and says, what do y'all have that we don't? You, you worship money and sex and power and politics and success and approval and comfort, just like we do. You just slap a religious veneer over it. Why should we do what you're doing? Until we show them something different. Until we renounce our idols and put Jesus on the throne again. I don't just mean singing to him. I mean meaning the words we sing. They won't be drawn to us. You want revival? Start by casting out your idols, being honest with yourself. Secondly, Here's what idols do to us. They change our character. Back in Psalm 115, we see a psalm about how foolish it is to follow idols. Why would you follow something that doesn't have hands or feet to help you, a mouth to speak to you, ears to hear from you? And verse 8 of Psalm 115 says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The, the scholar G.K. Beale wrote a book based on that verse called, We Become What We Worship. And he pointed out that this day in Exodus 32 is the day God started calling the Israelite people stiff-necked. And it wasn't just this day. From then on, he calls them that. You're a stiff-necked people. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's a reference to livestock. If you're trying to get a, a calf to go a certain direction and that calf refuses, it's stiff-necked. It's got its neck facing that way. It won't turn to the right or the left. It will go the way it wants to go. And God says, that's what you've become. You've become like what you worshiped. See, I have some experience with this. Do you want to hear my, my legendary cowboy story? You're going to hear it either way. So um, my dad retired several years back and, and, and he raises cattle now, which doesn't sound like retirement to me, but that's another story. Um, I went to help him several years ago. And, and what we were trying to do is we were trying to separate his calves from his cows and get the calves into this smaller pen and from that smaller pen into a trailer, right? So we could take them to market, so we could sell them. That's the whole cattle business. Problem was there was this one calf that didn't want to go. He knew what we wanted him to do. The others were fine. Yay, you know, I'll just go through that gate. I'll go wherever you want me to. This one, who happened to be the biggest, of course, we found out later he weighed over 500 pounds. 
By the way, I, I weigh less than that, in case you're wondering. So we're doing our best to try to get him through this gate, and he knows what we want him to do, and he won't do it. And so dad is the one kind of chasing him around, and I'm operating the gate. So I said, dad, I, I'm younger. Let me chase him. He gives me this stick that, that I used to whack the thing with, right? And he holds, the, he holds the gate, and I'm chasing this bull back and forth. And he knows what I'm trying to get him to do. He won't do it. And every time he turns the wrong way, I'm whacking him between the eyes as hard as I can. And finally, finally, he just turns towards me and lowers his head and charges and runs right over me. I mean, down I went and he went over me. And fortunately, he didn't step on my head, didn't step on any vital organs, but I mean, banged me up pretty good. I mean, I was, my chest was purple and, and orange and all kinds of colors for about a month. And, and then we finally, I get up and, and we finally get him into that smaller pen. And then we got to get him on the trailer. And that's no easy task either. In fact, at one point in that process, he charged me again and pinned me against the side of the, the pen, right? Just pinned me, hit me in the side of the leg. So now for the next month, six weeks, I'm walking like an arthritic old man, right? I'm just a walking bruise. My brother finally gets off work, shows up. The three of us get that thing on the trailer. We take it to market. We unload it. My dad says, Jeff, I feel so bad for you. Just tell me, whatever you want to eat for supper, we'll do it. And I said, I want Whataburger. <laughs> I had a double. It was so good. That's the picture of stiff-necked, right? We'd rather, we'd rather destroy God than follow him. We'd rather despise him than, than give him honor and obedience. And that happens when we worship things other than God. We become like those things. See, Beale's quote from his book is, is a great quote. He says, what people revere, they resemble, whether for ruin or restoration. So if you worship God, you start to become more like him. And people see that. They're like, why are you so much more patient than you used to be? Why are you so much more able to be kind to people who aren't kind to you? Why do you have the courage now to speak truth to people who need to hear it? You didn't used to be that way. Why do you love people who are not lovable? Well, that's because I've spent time with my father. But on the other hand, if you worship money, you're this bundle of anxiety. With the fluctuations of the stock market, that, that judges your mood and, and your, your temperament. You, you're a... Uh, if you worship success, you're not going to have any true friendships. You're going to be a person who uses people, doesn't actually love them. If you worship comfort, you start to become lazy and fearful. See, here's one sure way to know what is the true God of your heart. Go down, make an inventory of your life and ask yourself, what would happen if this thing or this person were no longer there? What would happen if I lost my career? What would happen if I lost the physical ability to do this task? What would happen if this person were suddenly gone? Could I survive? And if your immediate thought is, I wouldn't want to go on living, then that, that has become an idol to you. Third thing. Third thing idols do to us, they consume our lives. In verse 6, when it says that the Israelites sat down to eat and rose up to play, it doesn't mean they got out their croquet mallets and their volleyball nets and, you know, their frisbees and their dominoes. No, it's a word that literally means sexual immorality and drunkenness. And Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, smashes those, those tablets at the bottom of the mountain. It has no impact on the people. They just keep on doing what they're doing. They're in the midst of a frenzy. They're under the domination of a false god. And Moses has to call on his fellow Levites, members of his tribe, to try to put down the crowd, to make them stop. And in the process, this violence breaks out and 3,000 people die. 
That's how out of control they were. We see the same story in Acts chapter 19 when a riot breaks out in Ephesus. Why did the riot break out? Why did the people gather in a stadium and chant for two solid hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians? Because they worshiped a false god named Artemis and her temple was a source of revenue. Tourists came to Ephesus to to see the temple of Artemis and they would buy little shrines of her, little statues. They would stay in the hotels. They would eat meals in the taverns. And now that people were becoming followers of Jesus who didn't have anything like that, you can't make money following Jesus. They were upset. These idols consume us. They control us. See, here's another good way to identify your idols. Think of the last time you lost your temper. Think of the last five times you lost your temper. Think about what grudges you have a hard time letting go of. See, what makes you angry is a clue to what your idols are. If you remember the time that that person was spreading false rumors about you and hurting your reputation, and if your response was, I'm going to get her. I'm going to make sure everybody I know hates her guts. Why would you do that when you know that that's the exact opposite of what Scripture tells you to do? It's because that, your reputation How other people see you is more important to you than that person's soul. And in fact, is more important than God because God commanded you what to do in that situation. Or for instance, what about the time when your wife, guys, I'm picking on us here, your wife came to you and said, listen, I need you home. I need you to be home more often. You're never here. The kids and I need to see you. And instead of being touched by that, you were furious and you yelled and hollered and shouted and threw things. Why? Because she'd stepped on one of your idols. Maybe it was your work. Maybe it was your, your, uh, your hobby or whatever it was that was taking you out of the home. That was more important to you than the love of your wife. More important than the God who told you, love your wives. Love your wives. Love your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, front two rows are going to hate me for this, but what about the time your parents took away your cell phone? And you're never disrespectful, but you were that day. You yelled and hollered and said awful things. Why? Because you don't know that you can live without that. That's that's the key to your heart. That's what you depend on. See, when our idols get touched, we get angry. And that's a clue to what matters most to us. That's a clue to what's out of perspective. Number four, what do idols do to us? They disappoint us. In the end, they always, always let us down. See, we idolize the things that protect us from whatever we fear. That's one of, the, one of the things we've learned. So, for instance, if you're terrified of being poor, then you'll worship money and success. If you're terrified of being alone, you'll worship marriage and family. If you're, if you're afraid that you're ever going to be old and unattractive, then you'll worship beauty and fitness. And all those things are good things. But all of, us, all of them let us down at some point. C.J.H. Wright, Bible scholar, says this, Ultimately, it seems, we never learn that false gods never fail to fail. That is the only thing about a false god you can depend on. And he's right, you know. Build up this big bank account, and then somebody invests it in something that doesn't go right, and it's all gone. You spend your money, and it's gone. You idolize something that doesn't live up to its promises. You idolize your family. Family is a good thing. 
Put yourself into your family and love them as, with all your heart, but don't lean on them for your identity and your purpose and your peace because they'll let you down. Someday your, your teenager won't talk to you. You'll be devastated. Someday your kids will grow up and move away. You will have nothing left. Someday you and your wife will be struggling and you'll be desperate. And if you worship beauty and fitness, I got news for you. Y'all are good-looking people. But there's an there's a, there's a expiration date. I mean, do push-ups. Get in your steps. Smear oil of lay all over yourself. That's great. But father time is still undefeated. I'm sorry. Your idols will let you down. The Israelites were terrified of uncertainty. They were scared to death that they might not know what to do or how they were going to get from here to the promised land. That's why they made this golden calf. They were tired of a God who they couldn't predict, whose ways were higher, whose thoughts were deeper. They were tired of every day waking up going, okay, what's he going to do today? They wanted a God who they could manipulate. What's easier to manipulate than a golden calf? And yet, only two out of that generation made it to the promised land. Why? Because your idols always, always, always let you down. It will not fail. The only thing that won't fail is God himself. So let me ask you three questions, and I want you to take this seriously. Write these down. Take a picture of the screen. One way or another, I want you to take these three questions and build them into your quiet time, all right? So the three questions are, number one, what do I think I can't live without? Number two, what makes me angry? And number three, what am I most afraid of? So, Bill, leave those, leave those questions up there for a while so people can write them down. This week, ask God, as you are honest with yourself, asking these three questions of yourself, ask God, okay, Lord, what does this mean about me? What does this say about who I am and what's most important to me? I do believe in you, Lord. I do want to serve you, but show me the things that are competing for your affection in my heart. I want to identify them so that from then on I know when they're starting to rear their ugly head and control me and consume me and disappoint me. See, there's good news in Exodus 32. There's an amazing thing that happens. Moses knows that the people have rejected God, that the, the covenant just six weeks before is already broken. And he, he doesn't want his people to die, but he also doesn't want God to be disgraced. He doesn't want all the nations of the earth to say, oh yeah, God could get the people out of Egypt, but he couldn't get them to the promised land. And so he's trying his best to salvage the relationship and he does an amazing thing. He comes to God and he says, Lord, punish me instead. Blot me out of your book so they can be your people again. He literally offers to take their place, even though he's done nothing wrong. And God says, Moses, you can't do that. You can't bear that burden, that weight. I will punish the people who are guilty. Now, the really good news is next week we're going to see as we conclude our series that God finds a way to bring the Israelites back and make them as holy and his chosen people again. But in the meantime, I want you to understand something. There is one and only one who is able to do what Moses tried to do. There's only one who is able to take our place, to be punished for us, to be rejected so we could be accepted. Nothing and no one in this world will do that. Only Jesus. Only Jesus is able to bear our burdens, to carry our sorrows, and to take away our sin and make us people of God forever. Only He is worthy of our worship and our praise.